Recording Teachers, the podcast sharing insights into being and becoming a teacher. I'm your host, Narelle Lemon, a professor in education at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne, Australia. I'm curious and I love to use this strength to find out more. So what better way to support others and to create this podcast to be able to gain insights and perspectives from colleagues and friends. This is Series 7 and I'm joined by five pre-service teachers who are currently undertaking a study tour and global practicum supported by the new Colombo Plan. We are recording as we are experiencing our time in Kaching, in Sarawak, Malaysia, Borneo. I'm so excited about this series, something a little different. So make a cup of tea and find a comfy place to sit or pop those earbuds in and go for a walk as you listen to Rachel, Lisa, Taylor, Steve and Lewis share their insights into and about being and becoming a teacher. Welcome to this episode of Teachers Supporting Teachers where Lewis is executive producer and he is joined with Taylor and Steve as they reflect about their final days of placement here in Kaching, Malaysia, Borneo. Enjoy this episode. I'd like us to reflect on our experience so far. We've been in Kuching, Malaysia for 18 days now and we have our final day of teaching tomorrow. There's an energetic atmosphere in the city as everybody's preparing for Chinese New Year. Christmas decorations have slowly been replaced with lanterns of red and gold since our arrival. And today one of my Chinese students brought me in uh, traditional snacks for everyone to try. They're really, really nice. But I want to ask you guys, because we're leaving in a few days, what will you miss most about Kuching? Um, I guess uh, maybe this is skewed because we've like done things where there's like official guides or whatever. But even just like when I bump into, you know, ask a shopkeeper or something, what something is, um, people have always been like really happy to just explain things and like take a bit of time out of the day to point you point out something or like give a little mm. bit of info or tidbit. So I think that's been. Yeah, quite nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel like a lot of people are really happy that we're just in, in, interested, in engaging. You, mm. you know what I mean? Mm. It's uh, yeah, it's really nice. Yeah. I, I think the food for sure is a big thing for me. Like um, and anything I don't know the name of too. Just walking by and somebody's just cooking at a at their own little stand and making some kind of pancake and uh, I've, I've just got to try it. It's only it's only two <laughs> two three ringgits. What would you say? I think just the general atmosphere, like we've been having really early mornings which has let us see this kind of version of Kuching that we wouldn't probably be exposed to otherwise, like the quietness of the city and just that kind of eeriness in a way where you wake up in the morning to the streets are empty and all you can really hear is like the call to prayer coming from a mosque in the morning and then you're coming home from school late in the afternoon and it's like this hustle and bustle of like the markets as they're setting up in the waterfront and just the like even the traffic absolute absolute chaos um 
being able to see Kuching in like all these different versions of itself yet still being the same beautiful city I think is something that yeah mm. I'm gonna miss having those moments definitely yeah me too well back to our school experience I wanted to ask you guys because we only had uh, I think nine days total mm -hmm. placement I wanted to ask you how do you work with students that you don't have a whole year to get to know and uh how do you accommodate for their need or learn who they are on the fly and work with them in that time? I guess it's a it's a massive challenge um, because we are in for such a short um, period of time and as well yeah there's um, like as we've been people have been discussing um, the whole time is that there's yeah huge language barriers and um, it makes it really hard to get to know students and, and form an effective bond and, or relationship. Um, yeah, and so it's just a compounding factor, but I think, um, yeah, and um, as well, actually, another point is that I feel like perhaps, in my experience, I don't know about the other um, placement students, but um, as an Australian, maybe I have a bit more of an outgoing uh, communication style that, that perhaps at first some of the shyer students, like, uh, might have found a bit intense, but I think by trying to have as many one-on-one -on -one conversations as possible, um, that's the best I can do, and it's mm -hmm. what I must do in order to like get some familiarity. Yeah. Yeah, I think you've just got to do the best you can with the information you're given in the time that you have. So. Um, that also, I guess, includes being active in seeking out information, whether you recognise that a student um, may need further additional support on your first day or just asking your teacher beforehand just to kind of go through you with the class um, and kind of give you a bit of a rundown of anything you should be looking out for or anything you know that the kids respond well to. Um, but, yeah, I think walking in on your first day and doing your absolute best to have that kind of personable and approachable nature is the best thing you can do so that the students feel comfortable and creating that like learning environment that fosters that kind of relationship where students feel comfortable. Mm. Yeah, and and as we were saying on the way home from, uh, from school today mm. about meeting with the teacher, like if it's a new class, meeting with the teacher 10 minutes beforehand um, just to figure out who's in the class and if there are any students with um, low-level English or any specific uh, special needs that you have to work around. It goes a long way, 10 minutes, a 10-minute chat before the beginning of class, definitely. Mm -hmm. And personality types as well. Who, who's a, a good student to ask um, to explain something to the class because they're really, really excited to do that? And they'd love the chance to shine in front of um, in front of twenty people, and then also the students who really, really don't want to be put on the spot, and they'd much rather you ask about their uh, what they've been thinking or what they've been working on in a smaller table, um, in a in a quiet group, just amongst their friends. Yeah, I found putting students in groups for a group task um, early on into my placement helped me recognise. Um, the difference in like those students in my classes and yeah who not to put on the spot who I know will be there to help me out to move the class discussions along all that sort of stuff I think collaborative learning at the very beginning is a good identifiable way to do that definitely 
Well, Malaysia is a country of multiple languages, from the Malaysian language itself to English, a few dialects of Chinese, and uh, I read there's 137 indigenous languages here. Whoa. So any classroom is, is bound to have uh, massive linguistic diversity. Uh, most students have been with the school for many years, some of them like the past 10, 12 years. Uh, but some of them have only joined recently, having moved to uh, another country from in Asia, and they have fairly limited English. But how did you guys find adapting to these different linguistic levels in the classroom? Well, I was fortunate enough to be kind of taken under the wing of one of their English second language teachers. Um, English is my specialty, however, teaching English as a second language is not actually something that's covered um, under my degree, as mine is always like aimed to secondary students. Um, so yeah, I quickly realised, I guess, the range um, of like English skills, I guess, um, that even in a lower level English class, you still had students that could survive in mainstream English at a lower level. And then you had students who were really struggling to understand um, instructional um, tasks and how you're having to use um, translate um, apps and all that sort of thing to communicate with them. Um, I had a bit of a chat to the language teachers before this um, so that just to get a bit of um, hints, tips and tricks on how to go about this because it was my very first time I guess being in that sort of environment. Um, using non-verbal communication was a big one. Um, they've kind of gotten into a routine of how to be able to um, indicate that like they need to go to the bathroom or they understand they don't understand or I need help. Um, and also just kind of like checking for understanding, making sure you're going at a pace that um, is reasonable as well. Like mm. I think um, I kind of went in with some expectations, I guess, to get through an entire worksheet and I realised very quickly we were only going to get through about three questions, mm. um, if we were lucky. <laughs> so being adaptable to that and just really taking your time to explain the words and like the vocabulary, keeping vocabulary lists, the kids love those. Um, yeah, I'm definitely still learning with this one, but it has been a very um, eye-opening experience on how to teach students mm. who, um, I don't think we realise as native English speakers how hard the English language is and how hard it is to explain um, like words like but and then how, like those words that we just innately know, I guess. So. The more common the word, I feel, the harder it is to explain, mm. like the earlier on in life that we that we learned it. But I, I wanted to touch on one thing you said um, about relying on non-verbal cues. Mm. Um, even with students with the highest level of English who are just a bit shy, um, especially if they've only met you in the last few days, reading those non-verbal cues, it is so, it's so important for mm for giving a good lesson. I, I had to teach a lesson where I didn't understand the, I didn't know the student's uh, knowledge of history at all. And, uh, and I had to gauge from the conversation from this lesson that I was giving her. And uh, very, very slight facial cues of like, oh, I know this. I was like, oh, okay, we need to, we need to move on to the next thing. Um, but back to, back to the language thing itself. What, what would you say, Steve? Um, I guess like even in the early childhood section of the school, there's very similar challenges um, in that the, you know the 
children are quite diverse from a variety of backgrounds and a variety of English ability. Um, I think for a lot of the children, um, they're pretty fortunate in that, like, often there'll be a staff member um, who will share one of the languages that they speak. So even though the primary language instruction is English, um, sort of tailored support can be often given in another language but there is a, from what we can gather by the school, is that there's an increasing cohort of um, students, particularly from Korea, who mm. um, there's not really the staff to support them at this stage. Um, I guess with a lot of our learning activities at an early childhood level, you can often get away with um, sort of modelling, yeah, through gesture or other things like that um, to get, yeah, if, for participation in an activity. And then I guess the other challenging thing sometimes is if someone's a child's upset or you need to communicate them something more to do with like the classroom routine, um, that that where it is can be quite difficult and there's not always a solution. Although I, I, uh, things like Google Translate have and the, the using the voice on that have been handy at times. Um, mm. Yeah. But in terms of like my own personal strategies, I guess yeah, like really trying to be conscious of using a simpler vocabulary whereas in, in Australia um, I've often as sort of best practiced tried to use quite complex vocabulary and you know really use try to use technical terms where appropriate because um, why, well my understanding is that the higher vocab like range of vocabulary a child's exposed to um, the greater sort of language rate of language development and vocabulary mm. they'll develop. So I often, yeah, for first language English speaking children, I often try to use very complex language in a consistent fashion so that they too can like pick up words. Um, but in this case, you're really trying to ensure effective communication first, and then later on you could build up complexity. Mm. Yeah, because they'll they'll never develop in their language skills if they're constantly miss. Uh, like if they're underestimated all the, the time mm. in terms of what they can mm. understand and you know humans and humans can understand so much from context um, if you've ever learned uh, another language just the the context of a sentence can teach you the meaning of a new word with never hearing the definition yeah. and even your tone of voice mm. can have so much impact and even like the skills you learn doing English as a second language, um, so teaching English as a second language um, can be applicable to kids who are struggling in mainstream English as well. That mm. differentiation aspect, yeah. Totally. All right, and to wrap this up, uh, before we head back to Australia, I want to ask you guys, what is the biggest lesson in this experience that you'd like to bring back to Australia with you? Um, taking care of your mental health has just been like this big overarching theme I think of our entire stay. Not only is our Professor Norell an expert in this field and has really instilled in us um, these like values to um, put yourself, um, kind of prior sorry, prioritise yourself um, in a teaching role. Um, because what was, the, what was the quote that we had when we were um, at the Islamic University about in the words of the cabin crew, to put on your own oxygen mask first before you can help someone else. Yeah. I think that's really applicable um, when it comes to teaching. And I think we're in a field right now that is burnt out, overworked, unpaid, and I think 
taking the time to prioritize your mental and physical health um, has been the biggest thing for me to make sure that I enjoy my career in teaching and mm. that it's a long-term career rather than a short and burnt out one. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, one of the themes for me has been along um, like neurodiversity and mm. sort of um, I guess mental otherness. Um, today I um, was fortunate enough to um, get to meet an advocate um, for um, autism um, in Kuching and amongst other things you know we're just discussing how education systems are changing and adapting and um, uh, like something I've noticed in Australia as well and I've really noticed it here in Kuching was that one of the first things that teachers at um, the school did was like really identify students that they thought had different learning styles or otherwise had diagnoses um, and it, it seems like everyone's getting really good at picking up on these things whereas once upon a time um, it wasn't necessarily, and so a lot of issues weren't, were never, uh, so anecdotally a lot of issues are never sort of noticed till adulthood. So it seems great that teachers are really aware of what to look out for, how to support parents, particularly where parents don't want to seek a diagnosis for their child. Um, but on the flip side, I think it's still a long way to go in terms of actually, okay, yeah, you could, you've identified something, but how are you actually going to adapt your teaching? Because I think it's probably actually getting a lot more effort at the end of the day to try and get a child who won't sit still to sit still than it is to just structure your lesson in a way that it doesn't matter whether they wiggle or not. Mm. Like, um, yeah, yeah, and you're just like putting effort into a more effective direction rather than just sort of, yeah, doing the same old thing over and over again. Um, that might work for most children, but doesn't work for everyone. And uh, I think, yeah, we very much, um, yeah, we're here to teach the whole class and that, you know, every every child deserves, I guess, uh, a chance, so, yeah. What a beautiful note to end this podcast on. Uh, I feel like we've all learned so much in this experience and we have so much to bring home and, uh, and still so much to learn over the rest of our teaching career. Um, but before we wrap up though, I have one note from uh, Rachel, who's uh, in COVID isolation, uh, and she's uh, phoned in to describe her lesson that she's going to bring home to Australia. The most valuable lesson I walked away with from my second placement was to continuously challenge and support your students and watch the magic unfold. If you don't provide enough challenges, then students will eventually disengage from their learning and remain within their comfort zone. Ensuring a consistent level of support also remains is crucial in seeing students truly flourish in their learning and holistic well-being. All right, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Taylor. And thank you, Narelle, for hosting us in your podcast, Teachers Supporting Teachers. as we celebrate, appreciate and share some small insights into our experience of a study tour in Kaching, Sarawak, Malaysia, Borneo. We hope it's inspired you, 
provided some insights and perhaps even sparked the possibility of you too participating in a study tour or overseas international experience. Thanks for joining us.